So last week we started a brand new series called Becoming an Organized Church. And the reason why we're doing this series is not because we're unorganized, but it's because when the Apostle Paul started churches, he not only started them, but later on he would organize them with elders and deacons. And so the question is, why did Paul do that? Well, whenever a company or organization or church grows, it also grows in complexity. Now, the problem with complexity is that it kills growth. So what you have to do is simplify those complexities so that you can continue to grow. And when you take a look at the Bible, God's blueprint to simplify the church is by installing elders and deacons. And so here's, here's the game plan for today. Uh, last week, we took a look at what an elder is and the qualifications for an elder. This week, we'll be taking a look at what a deacon is and the qualifications for a deacon. And so even though we won't be uh, nominating and electing deacons until next year, I do think that it's important to talk about both of these um, offices because oftentimes they can get a little bit blurred. So what I want to do is, first of all, talk about why we need them, what they are, and the qualifications for a deacon. So why do we need them? Take a look with me at verse one. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, some scholars think up to 10,000 people, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the number of disciples are increasing or growing. Again, some scholars think up to 10,000 people, but whenever a church grows, it also grows in complexity. And there were two complexities that the church was facing. The first was racial complexity, and the second was manpower complexity. So the first was racial. There was a group of Hebraic Jewish widows who grew up in Jerusalem and spoke Aramaic who were being privileged over Hellenistic Jewish widows who did not grow up in Jerusalem and they spoke Greek. And so quite literally, the Hebraic Jewish widows had a seat at the table, the Hellenistic Jewish widows did not. And as one member of our community recently reminded me, widows are still one of the most neglected demographics in the modern church today. And it seems to have been the case in the early church as well. And a part of the reason why there was uh, sort of this neglect for the Hellenistic Jewish widows was because of racial inequity. Uh, they, they were not as privileged. Uh, they were being prejudiced and discriminated against with this normative policy where uh, the Hebraic Jewish widows were favored over, uh, over and against them. And so even though there was a lot of diversity there wasn't a lot of solidarity within the early church community. Uh, so they faced racial complexities, but they not only faced racial complexities, but manpower complexities. So uh, the church, has, as I said before, is exploding by the thousands, but the problem was there were only 12 disciples. And they quickly realized that they cannot meet the physical needs and the spiritual needs of everyone in their community. So what do they do? They simplify. And the way that they simplify this is by appointing seven Greek-speaking deacons to take care of the daily distribution of food, the practical, tangible needs of the community, so that they can focus on the ministry of the Word 
and prayer. And so as we think about the life of our own community in our own context, why are we nominating and electing deacons next year? Uh, well, I like the way that Rick Warren put it when he said this, uh, when you go to a small town, there are usually small hospitals and a small number of patients. When you go to a big city, there are big hospitals and a large number of patients. And similarly, smaller churches have a small amount of patients usually, and bigger churches have an increasing number of patients. Well, our church, as we are growing, we are having, uh, we have more and more patients. And by the way, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. I never want, to, want us to not be a hospital. I want our church to be a hospital where the hurting can come and find healing. But at the same time, there were times in particular in 2020 where our staff, we felt like we were doing triage in the ER because of all the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual needs of our community. And so there were times where, you know, imagine a dam that has holes and you're trying to fill those holes with your feet and your fingers, and but more holes keep popping up. And at a certain point, it's just not sustainable for us to continue to go the way that we're going. And so we've been able to survive for the past six years without deacons, but we're now at the point where we do need to seriously think about nominating and electing deacons for a sustainable future if we want no one to be neglected like the way these Hellenistic Jewish widows were, and we want everyone to be taken care of in the life of our community. And so that's why we're talking about this. That's why we need deacons. So the next question is, what is a deacon? Take a look with me in verse 2 and 3. And it says, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. So deacons are servers or waiters who wait on tables. Have you ever gone to a restaurant before and experienced incredible service? The kind of service where you want to tip more than 20% because you felt so loved and taken care of? Well, that's what deacons do for the life of our church community. They make sure that everyone is loved and taken care of because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And deacons make sure that everyone in our community is taken care of. And so what they represent is the compassionate, merciful arm of our church. They are our spiritual social workers. And so while elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. Let me say that again. Elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. So let me give you some practical, tangible, concrete examples of what deacons will potentially do in the life of our own church. So this past year, a lot of people in our community were unemployed because of COVID. What can deacons do? They can help people, you know, figure out how to file for unemployment. They can help people with job coaching. They can help people find new jobs. Uh, they can distribute financial resources through our Mercy Fund to those that need to meet basic living expenses. And I'm grateful that we've been able to do that this past year for a few people in our community. Uh, deacons can also help out with the sick. Uh, this past year as well, it wasn't unusual for me and our staff to get 
uh, phone calls, slacks, emails with people that were absolutely terrified because they got COVID and their parents got COVID and they wanted prayer. And deacons can provide prayer in addition to groceries or, or you know, anything at a drugstore that someone might need so that they can assist those that are sick. Uh, for those in our community that are experiencing trauma, mental illness, anxiety, depression, loneliness, suicidal thoughts, de uh, deacons can walk, al walk alongside of you and be a friend, a listening ear. They can counsel. They can also refer you to RCS, uh, which stands for Redeemer Counseling Services that we partner with to help you uh, 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 work alongside of them and and we can also assist you and subsidize the financial costs for the counseling. And, and I'm so grateful that so many members of our community have tapped into RCS and they will be the first to tell you how life-giving RCS has been for them. Um, right now, there's also a baby boom in our church. And uh, when you're a new, new parent in particular, um, having a baby for the first time, I mean, first two or three months are absolutely terrifying and just a whole whirlwind. And uh, right now, Elise has been holding down the fort with uh, a meal train, uh, but that's also something that the um, deacons can do to support our, our moms and dads who have just given birth to a newborn. These are just a few tangible, practical, concrete examples of what our deacons can do, but in short, they represent the compassionate and merciful arm uh, of our church. And I'm thrilled to actually say that we've not only been able to do that for the life of our community, but for communities in our city as well and other ministries in our city. Uh, one pastor I deeply, deeply admire and respect is Michael Carrion and his church in the Bronx. And uh, about four weeks ago, they had a, a grand opening for their new building. Uh, they, they purchased this building, gutted it, renovated it, got a stage, lights, equipment, um, the whole thing. They had a grand opening for their new building four weeks ago. But just two weeks ago, there was a fire in an adjacent building. That fire spread, unfortunately, tragically, to their new building. And so there was a lot of damages that were done. I mean, we're, we're talking right now about potentially buying some kind of ministry space for an office or something like that. I can't imagine gutting it, renovating it, buying all this equipment for it, only to see it burn down two weeks after we open it. So you can imagine the devastation and sorrow and grief that this community might be facing. And so I was messaging him this past week saying, hey, we would, we would love to uh, financially support uh, the reconstruction of your church building for your community in any way that we can help. And so that's what deaconing is all about. It's, it's, it's the merciful, compassionate arm of the church to help those that are uh, in need. And I am convinced that even though we've been able to survive without deacons for the past six years, I am convinced that we cannot survive much longer without deacons. So, uh, what are the qualifications for a deacon? Take a look with me in verse three. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. So there are three things that we see from this passage. The first thing that we see is that the early church chose their deacons from amongst themselves. In other words, deacons are not these outside consultants that we bring in. Rather, our next deacons are already amongst us inside the life of our community, not outside the life of our community. The other thing that we see is that the disciples, 
They're not the ones that pick who they like as the next deacons. Rather, they tell the members of the church, you are the ones that should appoint who you want to be the next deacons of the church. And similarly, at Exilic, the staff, we can't just pick who we want to be the next deacons of our church. Rather, as members of our community, you have to nominate and elect who you think the best deacons will be for the life of our church. And so here's the way that our philosophy and ministry works. At Exilic, we are elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally approved. One more time. Elder-led, deacon-served, congregationally approved. Now, there are other criteria to be a deacon as well, not just from someone from within our community, but they're also called to be a person that is full of the Spirit. And I like this Greek word for full because it connotes this idea. Have you ever gone to Starbucks before and the you know you order a cup of coffee and the barista fills it all the way up to the brim? They fill it up so much that there's no room to add milk or anything else. That's what it means to be full of the Spirit. You are so full of the Spirit that you cannot possibly be full of yourself or your ego or your pride. Instead, you are so filled with the Spirit of God with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in your life that there is no room for anything else. A person that is filled with the Spirit has Christ basically at the center of their lives and everything that they do. So last week I used the example of a pizza pie to sort of uh, talk about spiritual integrity. Today, let me just talk about a bicycle wheel. So imagine this bicycle wheel represents your life and each of the different spokes uh, are, is a different compartment of your life. So church, God, family, friends, work, Saturday nights, hobbies, etc., etc. A person that is full of the spirit has Christ at the center of the wheel, just like the hub is at the center of the wheel. And it's from your relationship with Christ that your understanding of relationships, work, family, everything flows out of this hub where Christ is the center. That's what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit and not full of ourselves. So we need people that are spiritually minded like this, but not only spiritually minded, practically minded which is why the writer also says that our next deacons have to be not only full of the Spirit, but full of wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is different from knowledge. Knowledge is just book smarts. You know what wisdom is? Wisdom is knowledge appropriately applied. It's book smarts on the streets. And we need our deacons to be filled with wisdom because not every situation is the same. Not every person's the same. Scenarios are different. And we need people that have the wisdom, discernment, and prudence to know how to navigate tricky situations, difficult situations, blurry situations to help the people, help whoever is in need. So we need deacons from within our own community that are full of the Spirit and full of uh, wisdom as well. Now, why should you aspire to be a deacon? Well, sometimes our culture frowns upon the service industry. We'd, we'd much rather be served than serve. But when you take a look at the Bible, and in particular in the life of Christ, what we see in Mark chapter 10 is that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Instead, he humbled himself and took on the form of a bond servant. Now, this is easier said than done. The theologian Kenneth Boa once said, everyone in the Christian community wants to be called a servant, but no one actually wants to be one. You know, sometimes we say things like we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, but oftentimes we forget what those nail-pierced hands and feet actually look like. Everyone in the Christian community wants to be called a servant, but no one actually wants to be one, including myself, which is why I have to tangibly do things to remind myself that I'm not just a leader, but I have to be a servant leader. And so I have to constantly do things to reorient my understanding of power, lest I forget that the way up is the way down. That if you ever want to be first, you have to first learn to be last. That if you ever want to be over people, you have to first learn to be under people constantly. And so I'll share an example of one thing I used to do. It's a little bit TMI, but um, hopefully it'll be somewhat helpful. Uh, some of you might remember this, but uh, we used to meet at a, a different menu on Sunday mornings when, when we were uh, in person uh, at an uh, art studio, which was just a really awesome venue, save for one thing, the two bathrooms in the back. And, and some of you might remember this, but it was pretty filthy. Um, uh, toilet paper all over the floor. Uh, the trash cans were bursting out with paper towels. There were stains in the toilet. And, and I remember thinking, uh, who the heck wants to use this bathroom? I don't want anyone in our church to use this bathroom. And so what I used to do every Sunday morning at 9.20 a.m. in my suit, I would scrub the toilet from the stains. I would pick up the toilet paper on the floor. I would stuff the paper towels down in the trash. And I would Febreze the place like crazy, which probably made it worse because it was filled with the aroma of, of sour urine usually. And so you were like jolted, you know, every time you walked into the bathroom. Now I, I did that, yes, to, to serve you and, and so that you could have a pleasant bathroom experience, but I also did that for myself to constantly remind myself that this is what leadership looks like. This is what it means to be a servant leader, lest you become an entitled one. To reorient my understanding of power constantly. I did that every Sunday for four years. I'm thankful we don't have to do it in the hotel anymore, but the, the, we, we have to think of tangible ways to always remind, myself, uh, remind ourselves that the way up is the way down. Because when you take a look at the Bible, King James Version in particular, it's interesting that the word leadership is only mentioned six times in the KJV, but, mentioned, uh, but the word servant is mentioned over 900 times, pointing to the fact that this is probably the kind of posture that we are all kind, we're all supposed to assume, primarily because this is the kind of posture that Jesus had. Jesus, you see, was the ultimate deacon. He's the one that got down on his knees to scrub the feet of his disciples, but he not only washed their feet, he washed away their sins. You know, whenever I take a look at the qualifications for an elder or deacon, um, I'm like, oh man, that's like a C minus or a D and, 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 you know, failing after failing after failing. But when you take a look at what the cross is all about, he takes our shortcomings when it comes to love, joy, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and he takes that imperfect, imperfect moral report card 
applies it to himself, and he gives us his straight A's as if we had lived that life. But he not only serves us by dying on the cross and forgiving and atoning for all of our sins, but he's still the ultimate servant today. He still bears our burdens. He still carries our anxieties. He is still a king who stoops down low to serve and meet our needs. And if this is the way of Jesus, this has to be the way that we also live our lives. And so, whether you end up becoming a deacon or not, are you deaconing? Are you coming to church to be served? Or are you serving? Are you coming to have your feet washed? Or are you washing other people's feet? Are you coming just to eat? Or are you also waiting on tables for other people as well? The greatest thing that you can invest in life is other people. And one of the greatest ways of investing in other people is by serving them as well. So let me close with the words of Jesus himself when he says, for whoever wants to become great, and I know all of us do, whoever wants to become great must first learn to be a servant. Whoever wants to be first, and I know all of us do, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is the way of Jesus. And this is the privilege that we have to be a deacon. Let's pray. Lord, would you constantly reorient our understanding of power uh, that our lives uh, should not be like Monopoly where we try to hoard all these different things, but really like Uno where we try to give away everything. And so help us all to have a posture of servanthood um, and remind ourselves and, and reorient our understanding of power that the way up is truly the way down. To be over people, we must first learn to be under people. In your name I pray, amen.